As you grab your seat, grab your copy of the scriptures, and you want to turn over to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament, the first of the major prophets. We are continuing to work our way through just a number of very important Old Testament texts and look forward to um, jumping into the book of Jonah and working systematically through that and several more weeks. But today we have an opportunity to jump into Isaiah. And let me begin with this question, just a personal question to you. Do you remember that time when your thoughts about God changed? You thought about God one way, and then something happened to you, something maybe significant in your thinking, your affections. You didn't always think about God uh, this way, but something happened. The lights were turned on for you. You stopped thinking about God in small ways, but you began to think about God in big ways. Or can you think of a time, even in your Christian life, when you were awoken from your spiritual stupor? You were confident that you were a believer. Your faith and your repentance was genuine. You're not doubting that. But there was just a season where you were kind of going through the motions, living maybe a nominal Christian life, not really excited about things of the Lord, not really spending a whole lot of time in the Bible or in prayer. But again, something changed. Again, you can look back on those days and say there was no major sin in your life, but you certainly were lacking a fervency and a hunger and a desire for the Lord. Someone asked R.C. Sproul what his greatest concern for the church was, and his response was this. He said, my concern for the church is the same concern I had when I started 40 years ago. It's that the world doesn't know who God is. They know that he is. There's general revelation, but they don't know who he is. And he said the great tragedy in the evangelical church is the same, that we don't know who God truly is. And he said if we just if we just caught the slightest glimpse of the transcendent majesty of our God, then our worship would be radically transformed. Our lives would be radically transformed. And I can't agree more with Brother R.C. The antidote for spiritual lethargy is a lavish vision of God himself. Because the clearer that you see God, The greater your faith, the greater your love, the greater your strength, the greater your sustenance in your service to Christ and to his church. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as it were in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What Paul says right there is beholding the glory of Christ is becoming like him. So the the most clear picture 
The, the clearer he is in our eyes, in our estimation, in our vision, the greater the opportunity we have to grow into his image. And what we want to do with our, our time this morning is we want to, with many saints, pray and pray boldly that God would show us his glory from his holy word. We want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this text here in Isaiah chapter 6, it has all the ingredients to help increase our view of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is all about the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So would you please pray with me and let us beg the Lord that he would allow us to see him from this text. Oh, Father, we are desperate and needy and poor and without hope apart from your grace. And so, Father, we call upon your grace with all boldness because of Christ to help us see your glory, your holiness, your majesty, your beauty. Please do that for us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our main idea from Isaiah chapter 6 is this. Isaiah gives us a renewed vision of the holiness of God, which humbles us and helps us offer our lives up in worship and faithful service. Let me say it again. Isaiah 6 gives us a renewed vision of the holiness of God, which humbles us and helps us offer our lives up in worship and faithful service. And we're going to work our way through this text with four major headings. First, we're going to look at God revealed here in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see that he is both sovereign and holy. Then we're going to look at verse 5 and see that man is sinful and hopeless. Then in verses 6 and 7, we'll see that God both saves and atones. And then we'll finish off the chapter focusing on God who sanctifies and sends. God is sovereign and holy. Man is sinful and hopeless. God saves and atones, and God sanctifies and sins. But before we dive into the content of these verses, it's really helpful because, again, we're parachuting into Isaiah to provide some historical background. So what is the context? What is the 10,000-foot view of the book of Isaiah? Isaiah is a book about judgments, but it's also a book about hope. There are 66 books, or 66 chapters in the book, and the first 39 are all about warnings. Isaiah giving warning after warning to Israel's corrupt leaders. If the people continued in covenant unfaithfulness, Isaiah says, it is going to cost you dearly. God would use the evil empires of Assyria and then later on Babylon to not just persecute his people, but carry them away into captivity. And so we see Israel and its leaders living in rebellion, idolatry, and practicing injustice. But the book is not all bad. Beginning in chapter 40, we get this message of hope and comfort that comes through the prophet. God promises to fulfill his covenant promises. And so when we think about even the stuff that we've studied in the weeks leading up, if you go back to Genesis 3, there's a promise of a seed that God makes to Eve. In Genesis chapter 12, that same promise is reiterated to Abraham. We studied 2 Samuel chapter 7 and saw God once again reiterating the promise of a seed to King David. And this seed, as we've discovered, it really is talking about Jesus Christ. 
He would be the one that would come and fulfill the the law, the covenant given at Mount Sinai to Moses and to the people of Israel. And it's through Christ that God would provide blessing and provide salvation for God's people. And through God's people and through Christ, it would branch out onto the rest of the world, the Gentile world. That's our historical context. And so as we land here in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, we read this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah begins with this time marker to help situate us, but it's not merely a chronological tick on the timeline of Judah's history. This statement is pregnant with all kinds of political and spiritual implications. Let's see if we can begin to unpack some of these as we look here at the history. You know, King Uzziah was the 10th king of Judah. 20 kings as a whole for Judah. Remember, the kingdom is divided. Israel is up in the north. Judah is down in the south. Assyria will gain power and eventually decimate Israel in 722 BC. Judah is not far behind as Babylon rises in power. Nebuchadnezzar comes and carries them away off to Babylon in 586 BC. What we learn is that most of these kings that stepped up to to rule and to lead the people, God's people, were bad kings, evil kings, wicked kings, but not all of them were bad. In fact, Uzziah was one of the good kings. He seemed to be living out what his name means. In Hebrew, his name is, the Lord is my strength. Imagine this. He's 16 years old. We have a few 16-year-olds in here. Rises to prominence, becomes the king, and then reigns for 52 years. As a teenager, then reigning over Israel, God's people, for 52 years. We cycle through presidents for maybe eight years. That could be good or bad. He's reigning for 52 long years, a half a century. That's like Lyndon B. Johnson's last year. A lot of you guys don't even remember that. All the way up to Biden. His first year, one leader, one ruler, one president, one king for that long. I'm sure many of you heard that uh, Queen Elizabeth II died just three days ago, 96 years old, 70 years reigning as queen, 70 years and 214 days to be exact, but that's the longest of any British monarch and the longest recorded reign of any female state in history. Uzziah didn't rule that long, but yet what we do learn is that it was considered the golden age for Judah. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles, you got 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, one of the history books in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 26. Here we learn that under Uzziah's leadership that Judah actually experienced great prosperity And if you're there in chapter 26 of 2 Chronicles, we read this in verse 4. It tells us that he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And there in verse 5, it says he continued to seek God. And as long as he sought Yahweh, God made him succeed. And the chapter goes on, and you can see it for yourself, that Uzziah's fame spreads. He fought and defeated the Philistines. 
He exacted tribute from the Ammonites. In addition to his military prowess, he built towers, he fortified borders, he expanded agricultural technology. I mean, this guy is an entrepreneur. He's a leader of leaders. He's doing amazing things, so much so that people are getting a sense of this is how it used to be when David was sitting on the throne. But we also learn there in 2 Chronicles 26, as is often the case, you grow strong, you have some victories, then it begins to get to your head. And that's what we see here. He becomes proud. Look there at uh, verse 16 in 2 Chronicles 26. It says this, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to Yahweh his God. And he entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered in after him, and with 80 priests of Yahweh, men of valor, and they stood against Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are set apart as holy to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from Yahweh God. The priests come and they say, Wait a second. This is not for you. Please stop. And there's 80 of them trying to prevent the king from doing something that he should not be doing. But, verse 19, Uzziah, with the censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of Yahweh beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because Yahweh had smitten him. And look at his tragic end for his pride and disobedience. So Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of Yahweh. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people and the land. What a tragic, tragic end to what seemed like a great king. It was his sin. It was his pride that cut him off. Now, there's a principle here, and this principle is throughout the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's even true of us today, that as the king goes, so go the people. When leaders walk with God, they rule in righteousness, then the people prosper. But when Uzziah fell into sin, the people faltered. And we read that Jotham, who took his place, was fairly good. But he didn't do one thing. He didn't tear down the high places. You say, Dom, what, what, what are the high places? Well, that's where everyone goes to worship and play with their idols. It's much like today. We come this morning on Sunday and we sing and we offer up our hearts and praise and we give and we use our gifts to God. But as often in the case, people leave on Sunday and they go back to their idols. And they bow down to those things and they watch those things and listen to those things and play with those things and allow their heart's affection to be clinging to those things. 
You see, what happens is a lot of people who go to church on Sunday, they're either getting a faulty view of God or whatever high view of God they have begins to fade and they fall back into that same sin. And in addition to that, when you have peace and prosperity, that often tempts us to forgetfulness, self-sufficiency, and apathy toward God. And that's what we see in the first five chapters of Isaiah. To turn over to Isaiah chapter 1, and let me just show you a couple of these denunciations that Isaiah launches at Israel. Chapter 1 and verse 4, Isaiah says, The last sinful nation, people heavy with iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons of who act corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurred the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from Him. Look down there at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Look at 23 of chapter 1. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and pursues rewards. They do not execute justice for the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Flip on over to chapter 2. Isaiah is speaking here of the influence of the foreign nations. He says, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. And there are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. And even when it seems like things are great, where there's prosperity and military victories, look at 2.7. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. And we say, well, that doesn't that sound good? Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that prosperous and successful? But look at verse 8. Well, it just leads to idolatry. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. The nation was succeeding materially, but morally they were decrepit. And to make matters worse, their king, their leader, their victor, their numero uno, their man in charge, He's dead. Injustice, wickedness, idolatry, apathy. It's not looking good. Assyria is growing stronger. They're on the move. It's a moment of instability. It's a moment of sin. And this right here is the context where God says enough is enough. And he reveals his glory to Isaiah. God is sovereign and holy. Look at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Now, lots of material has been written about how did Isaiah see the Lord? What Was this a vision? Is it a dream? Did he see him literally? We don't know, and that's perfectly okay because... The issue is not so much how he saw him, but what he saw. What did he see? He sees 
the sovereign king sitting on the throne. And every single word and phrase here in verse 1 is meant to enhance our understanding of the transcendence and sovereign majestic glory of God. First, I want you to notice that the word Lord there is not how we typically see it. You should have a capital L, but a lowercase o-r-d. This isn't capital L-O-R-D. When we see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, yod Hey vav Hey, I am that I am. But that's not what we have here. We have Adon, Lord, Master. Isaiah is telling Israel, in the year that you lost your king, the true king is alive and sitting on the throne. Those 52 years, well, after that, more came, more died. This king doesn't die. Secondly, notice that the king was sitting on the throne. He's not scurrying around. He's sitting. And to sit conveys the idea that he is in absolute power, that he has absolute authority, that he is in control of all things, He is both the king and the just, delivering righteous judgments. Thirdly, he's not only sitting, but it says there he sits high and lifted up. That language is the language of exaltation, veneration. You see, Uzziah labored for 52 long and grueling years to establish peace and prosperity, but the true king doesn't even have to lift a finger. He doesn't even break a sweat. But maybe the most significant thing that we see here is the contrast. Because Uzziah lifted himself up and said, you know what, I I, I should go to the temple and I could do the things of the priest. And I could draw near to God and I can be in God's presence. And because he lifted himself up, God abased him and humbled him. But the contrast here is Uzziah has to try to lift himself up, which he cannot do. God does not lift himself up. He is high. He is lifted up. And just to give you a picture of how majestic and elevated God is, the scriptures say that the train of his robe fills the temple. When Jess and I got married, um, she didn't have a very long train to her dress. Part of that was because we were outside. We didn't want that thing to get dirty. But another part of it was you kind of reserve that for royalty, which we are not. In Solomon's temple, we're talking about one of the wonders of the world. And as magnificent as that earthly temple is, Isaiah, we think, is seeing a vision, a picture of the heavenly temple. And what's being described here is just the hem of his robe. That's it. Not the robe, not he himself, just the hem. It is completely and totally filling up the entire temple. And what this is communicating is, oh, how majestic is our God. The picture we see here of God in verse 1 is that he is transcendent, he is sovereign, he is majestic, but it gets better. Not only is he sovereign, but he is unspeakably holy. 
Look there at verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. You say, well, who are these seraphim? This is the only place we see them, but the seraph, that's a Hebrew word that just means to burn. Literally, these are the burning ones, the glowing ones. Some of you, I know this, are you a little trigger happy when it comes to a certain emoji? Okay, on social media or on Slack, you like to do the little fire emoji because that is fire. You say that's an excellent point or that is praiseworthy. These beings are not just a little flicker and flame. These things are magnificent and glorious flames, angels, the seraphim. They're around the throne of God, burning. Picture that. Every time we see fire in the Old Testament, it's usually talking about God's holiness. And the most memorable scene is back in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses comes to the burning bush. The bush is set on fire. The fire is burning, and Moses is told by God, don't you come any closer. And take off your shoes, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And that's what we see here, this this scene of heaven, the seraphim, these burning ones. They're the fiery guardians of God's holiness. But consider this. Even the majestic creatures, as beautiful and brilliant as they are, they're not compared. They can't be compared to God. Though they minister day and night in the presence of God, but the text says they still have to cover their face. They can't even look upon the holiness of God. You think about this advice I was given when I was a young kid. Dom, don't stare at the sun. But when you're six years old, you go outside and you stare at the sun. And I remember thinking to myself, how dumb was that? Because I couldn't see for a little while. My my vision was distorted. Well, you take just a little tiny glimpse at the glory and holiness of God, your vision doesn't get distorted. You get destroyed. So with two wings, they cover their face. With two wings, they cover their feet so as to say, I am humble and unworthy to be in your presence. And with the final two wings, it says, they flew. That Hebrew word is hovering like like a hummingbird, ready to move in this direction and that direction. At whatever the Lord's bidding, they're eager at a moment's notice to respond to God's command. And listen, When we come and we worship God and sing these songs, we have to realize that the crown of worship is our amazement at his majesty and our willingness to be obedient. When God says go, we go. When God says do, we do. With no hesitation, with no conversation, that is what worship is. So these angels, they're holy, they're reverent, they're humble but they're also powerful. Look there at verse 4. It says in verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filled with smoke. I used to think that these 
angels, these angelic beings, were like Cupid, like the little sweet, precious moment angels that go in a nursery, and you just want to go and squeeze the little angel's cheek. That is not the scene in heaven. The sheer decimal level of the sound of the seraphim says it shakes the foundations. Jess and I, we've been to Israel. I've seen the temple. These stones are gigantic. But when the seraphim call out, these magnificent stones begin to rattle and shake. Well, what are they saying? It's a threefold repetition, and it's significant in the Hebrew language. It's called the trisagion. You see, in the Hebrew language, there's no real adequate comparative. There's no superlative forms. Instead, what they used is a pattern of repetition. They would clump words together to emphasize them. If you take a look at even my sermon notes here, I've got all kinds of things to tip me off. I've got highlights and bold and exclamation marks, and I've got underlines, and I've got stars all over my transcript. That's what we do in English. But in Hebrew, what they do is they just repeat themselves to emphasize something. So in Genesis 1.27, we read this, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know what the Word of God is telling us? He's the creator. We don't get to determine that. We don't get to choose. We don't get to change that. Genesis 1.27 is God is the creator and he creates the way that he wants. And he did it, male and female. But the repetition provides emphasis. Abraham, Abraham. Simon, Simon. Martha, Martha. Jesus says, amen, amen. Truly, truly. But notice here, the angels, they don't just say, holy. They don't even just say, holy, holy. They say, holy, holy, holy. And the language sees this on the incline as it gets louder and louder. My Old Testament prof, Dr. William Barrick, he calls this the emphatic Semitic triplet. This is a super superlative. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh, Savaot. He is the Lord of armies. So we see these two seraphims shouting back to one another. But in reality, Yahweh is the Lord of every single army of angels. And if one angel's voice shakes the foundation. Imagine what God can do if he sends all of his angels to do his bidding all at once. The great Puritan Stephen Charnock in his book, Existence and Attributes of God, says this about holiness. He says, holy is used more often as a prefix to God's name than any other attribute because holiness is God's crown. I want you to consider that. There are some people who claim to have a God, but their God is not a holy God. Imagine if God was all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere at all times, but he wasn't holy. 
That would be a terrifying God. But our God, as he's described in the Bible, attaches holiness to everything that he is. And so he's holy omniscient. He's holy omnipotent. He's holy omnipresence. We don't divide God into parts. We don't put him together like, like, a, like a Lego set and you get all these attributes and put them together. No, God is simple, but even in his simplicity, everything that he is is holy. Now, let's just consider real quickly this idea because we've sang it a ton this morning and we'll continue to sing, but that root word of holiness, what does it mean? It means to separate to cut, to divide. There are lots of holy things in the Bible. God, he says that the ground is holy that Moses is on. He he sanctifies the Sabbath day and makes it holy. Israel is a holy nation. There's holy garments. There's a holy city. There are holy men. There are holy women. We can raise up holy hands. We can give one another a holy kiss. All these things are made holy. There's a derivative sense of their holiness, but God stands alone with intrinsic holiness. He himself is holy. A.W. Tozer, in his famous book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this, and this is so helpful. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. God's holiness is his absolute purity and the excellence of his own being that distinguishes him from every other thing. And it's his holiness that the angels are proclaiming back and forth to one another. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was Filled with smoke. So here they are. They're volleying back and forth how holy God is. And then all of a sudden, there's this rising up of smoke. Turn with me real quickly to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, where we see something very similar when God comes down to the mounts there in Sinai. Exodus 19 and verse 16. We read there, as God brings the law to his people and he shows up, So it happened that on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder when Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Look, this is not the view I had of God. 
I had a kind of Mr. Rogers, Santa Claus, sweet grandpa view of God, not a holy view of God. And while I maintained this diminished view of God, I enjoyed my sin. And I lived for myself. And I didn't walk around in humility. But when God transformed my understanding of how holy he is, everything changed. Isaiah gets this HD picture of God's holiness, and it forever changes him. The earth is quaking. He is terrified. If the angels cause fear and weeping and cause you to wet your pants, what does God do? And the question for you and I as we sit here is, do we think of God like this, the way the Bible describes him? How do you treat God? Is your relationship with God casual, nonchalant? Well, if I, if I read the Bible today, eh. Are you trifling with the transcendent God of the universe? Listen, what you do in private tells what you think about God's holiness. How you use your phone and your computer tells how you think of God's holiness. How you spend your time, how you spend your money demonstrates how holy you think God truly is. Listen, church, the last thing that we want to do here, the last thing that we want to do is allow our light to go out because we've diminished our view of God. And we're trifling with the transcendence. We don't want to domesticate him. We don't want to try to tame him because we can't. We don't want to say, well, he, he's, too, he's, he's too much, so let's, let's not impose him on people. Let's not be offensive. Let's kind of lower the requirements. What is man's response to a renewed vision of God? It's right here in verse 5. Look at what Isaiah says. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. And here in verse 5, we see man's sinfulness and his hopelessness. This right here, ladies and gentlemen, this is the only appropriate response for a sinner when he sees God. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. Now, remember, who's the one saying this? This is the prophet. This is the man of God. This is what people would say, the holy man. And you say to Isaiah, do you think you're a holy man? You know, I sometimes fall into the trap back in the day when I go into the gym and I kind of look around, I think, hey, I'm the biggest guy here. And then the 6'9", 260-pound guy comes in and I think, no, I'm not. And it puts me in my place. The same thing goes for Isaiah. It's real easy to pick out certain people and compare yourself and say, well, I'm holier than they are. 
um, more faithful than they are. But can you do that in the presence of God? Isaiah recognizes, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm contaminated. His verdict is, woe is me. And what's significant is the prophets were the ones that give out blessing and woes. Right? Jeremiah says in 17.7, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh. That's the kind of pronouncement we want. We don't want woe. Jesus says over and over again in Matthew chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. The scribes, the Pharisees were damned for their hypocrisy. You don't want a woe. Isaiah says on himself, woe is me. There's a big difference between, wow, look at how great I am. Isaiah doesn't see this vision of God and pull out his phone and take a selfie. He's not amazed at the situation like he's so privileged to be there. And I got to tell all my friends, hashtag hanging with the man upstairs. He says, I am decimated. I'm undone. And he's the most righteous man in the nation. Think about that. What happens when we encounter the holy God? All of us must fall on our face. Matthew Barrett says this, look, being impressed by the sight of God and being satisfied with self are mutually exclusive. Church, a profound awareness of God will always, always, always lead you to a painful awareness of your sin. And my fear is that sometimes we just like to measure our holiness to other people. And the scriptures are telling us, no, you want to measure your holiness, measure it to God. Before there's any rejoicing, listen, church, we need to be ruined. Before there's any delighting in God, we need to be devastated of how sinful we are. Isaiah says, I am coming apart. Like Thanos, when he snaps his finger, Isaiah is decimated. You say, well, why is his reaction so strong? Look there in verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. And you say, why this, why this attention to his lips? Because this is his job. He's a prophet. God gives you a word, you go speak that word. But how can he do that if his lips are polluted? And we know that he's not just talking about his lips. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 that the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the what? The hearts. It's not just his lips that are evil. It's not just his lips that are corrupt. It is his very being. The very core of his being is defiled. When was the last time that you reminded yourself that you were this hopeless? That if it were not for the grace of God, the mercy of God, if it were not for God revealing himself to you, that you would still be 
in this poor and pitiful and damnable and woeful situation. When was the last time that you wept over the fact that some of your friends and family who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus are still in this state? This is the spiritual condition of everyone who doesn't know Christ. And that should terrify us. So listen, point number one, God is sovereign and holy. Point number two, man is sinful and hopeless. But point number three, and it's a beautiful one, God saves and atones for sin. Look at verse six. Isaiah says, Then, just at the right time, when I realized I was done for, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and then he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now what I want you to notice is that God is the one here who initiates all of this. He is the one who acts before Isaiah even conceives of the idea to ask for forgiveness or help. God sends the angel to do the work for him. The altar stood just in front of the Holy of Holies in the temple and those hot coals were there to ignite the sacrifices on fire. Those animal sacrifices were crucial to appease God's wrath and his anger against Israel's sins. And all of this, listen church, this is the symbolism. God is connecting the dots for us. This is sacrifice and substitution and atonement and propitiation. God is doing all the work here on Isaiah's behalf in order to purify him and cleanse him and perfect him. And listen, none of this is coincidental. All of this is pointing to a greater reality. You see, Isaiah, you can feel it, it's palpable. He is hopeless. What is he going to do? Answer, God is going to solve the problem. And he's going to go right to the altar to solve man's sinful problem. You know, I think about Isaiah there in the temple. And I had this image that it would be better to get on a plane or a rocket. You would stand a better chance landing on the sun than being in God's presence. And yet, God, knowing that, provides the shade and the covering so you can be with him. And that's exactly what we see. Instead of being consumed, his sins are covered. That word kippur, it means to cover or to atone. You're familiar with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement? Well, listen, when your sins are fully covered, everything that you've done, past, present, future, every shortcoming, every act of disobedience, everything that dishonors God and hurts you and others, God in his grace covers that sin. And it's not just your sin that's covered, but the guilt that comes along with it. God pays for that in full. Listen, church, there is no way that there can be atonement for sin 
apart from sacrifice. And Isaiah sees that right here. When someone tells you that there's another way to God, there's another way to salvation, another way to heaven, but they don't have Christ at the center, that's foolishness. All of the Bible from start to finish points to this sacrifice that was to come. If you want your sins covered, if you want your sins forgiven, it only comes through the altar. Well, we've experienced these three scenes, these majestic scenes. Isaiah's vision starts there with the sovereignty and holiness of God. Then we saw man's sinfulness and hopelessness. Third, God saves and atones. And now fourthly and lastly, in verse 8, God speaks for the first time. Look at the text. He sanctifies and sends. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah catches this picture of God's holiness. You say, what's the result? He's convicted. He's crushed. He confesses. He's cleansed. He's commissioned. And now he goes and he conveys God's message. And listen, at the heart of all of this is the gospel. The same experience that Isaiah had is the same experience that all of us had. And yet, we can't bypass the rest of the chapter. Because if you've been saved, and if your sins have been covered, and if you've been restored, and if you've been granted forgiveness, then you have a job to do. And you say, well, wait a second, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a pastor. Yes, but if you're sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, then you have an obligation. You have a privilege to communicate this very message. And you know what's beautiful about our message as opposed to Isaiah's? If you read the rest of the text, it says that Israel is not going to listen. They're going to grow hard. They're going to be stiff-necked. Their hearts are fattened. They're not going to listen. But God promises us on this side of the cross, you preach the gospel Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Yes, people might not listen. They might not repent. But the new covenant promises that all who believe can have their sins forgiven. So let me just close with this. Who here is going to respond to this message? Who here is going to get up and proclaim the excellencies of our holy God? Who here understands your hopelessness, God's amazing forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his love towards you? And who wants to go and proclaim this message? Brothers and sisters, if you have beheld the glory of God, experienced the grace of his holiness, you need to be compelled to go and proclaim the gospel. Who else is going to go? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Now as we close, just turn real quickly to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, in verse 27, we have our New Testament commentary of Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to the words of our Lord. 
Now my soul has become dismayed, verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ is to remain forever. How do you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had done so many signs before them, they were still not believing in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. And look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. You see, when Isaiah sees the vision of God on the throne, he sees Jesus Christ sitting on the throne with a train of his robe filling the temple with glory. And Jesus is the one, the holy one, the righteous one, the only one that can initiate the forgiveness and the application of sins. And this church is the message that you and I get to preach This is the message that saves souls. And this is the message that we must, must, must preach. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for having such a low view of your holiness. God, we don't want to trifle with your transcendence. We don't want to think low thoughts about your greatness. We don't want to be meh about your majesty. God, we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to pursue those things, God, that honor your name. We want to be like the seraphim, walking around in humility and dependence, but boldly proclaiming your holiness. Oh, Father, please have your way in us. Forgive us, Lord. Wash us clean. 
renew our spirits, enlarge our vision of you. Oh, Father, how we need you desperately. How we need a fresh vision. We will have kings rise and fall, presidents live and die. We might have our health decline, our finances dive, even the unity of the church divide. But it's during these times of trial, Lord, that we need to think eternally and biblically. It's during these times of difficulty and heartache when our security is not in social security, our protection is not in politicians. We don't rest on trying to reform society, God, but we put all of our confidence in you, the one who sits on the throne, who reigns forever, and who provides forgiveness of sins. Lord, when we see you for who you are in your magnificent glory, we will never be disappointed, and there is no danger that could truly befall us. Help us, God, to live this, to love this, and to proclaim this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.